Remarkable people! This is Tracy Robbins King, and you are listening to the Thy Neighbor Podcast. Interviews highlighting individuals in my day-to-day life who are crushing it and making the world a more lovely place to inhabit. In an effort to reach more remarkable people, I invite you to subscribe to this podcast and give a five-star review on iTunes. Please share with me which interview has impacted you the most. If you think of someone while listening to the podcast, please share it with that person. I read every review and I am so grateful. Dewan Coombs is my running partner. We have run off and on throughout the years and she has become a dear friend because she is both consistent and she is a true friend. I am so grateful to have her on the podcast today. Besides being my friend, she is an associate professor of English at Brigham Young University, where she also serves as the university secondary education coordinator. She earned her bachelor's degree in English teaching from Brigham Young University and her master's degree in reading and literacy from the University of Utah while teaching English and reading at Provo High School. Later, she earned her PhD in language and literacy education from the University of Georgia. Go Bulldogs. Is that right? That's right. (laughs) She loves teaching, but when she's not working, she also loves running, hiking, camping, cooking, eating, yes, traveling, spoiling her nieces and nephews, watching college sports, and sometimes even reading. She's a bit of a social media recluse, but she loves interacting with people in person. And I can testify to you that Dewan is one of the best. I'm so excited to have you here today. And I just, I'm almost touched. I'm like, Devon, you're so special to me. And I love you. So I'm so glad you're here today. That's what you get, I guess, when you run with somebody. So you like learn so many great things about them. Is there anything you want to add on to that bio? I probably should have included that I'm a little bit obsessive. That's why you have to run with me all the time. But I appreciate it. And yeah, you said a lot of nice things. So thank you. That's, yeah, you're the sweetest. Or I don't know, was this the last time, Duan, that you ran the St. George Marathon, that you ran it in like three hours? And how fast did you run your last marathon? It was so fast. It was three hours and 19 minutes. And I'll probably never run that again. So we'll just put it out there for the whole world. So amazing. Anyway, you guys, I just think that's amazing. So I want to toot Duan's horn because she's amazing. And we're going to start off with... How did you gain an appreciation and passion for literacy? Okay, so this has nothing to do with running, but um, growing up, I really loved school and reading. I was probably a little bookish, but I had three younger brothers and they did not necessarily feel the same way about books and reading. They did school and they were, I'm sure, smarter than me because they could do it without having to work super hard. But Um, one of our brothers really struggled a lot. And so my mom, I mean, she did the same things with him that she did with the rest of us, but from an early age, like he just resisted books and the whole reading experience. And I mean, I remember her trying everything. Like she would buy books about things that he liked. If there was something advertised on TV, she would get it. You know, she had him tested, but she just didn't know how to help him. And then in fourth grade, he was diagnosed with ADHD and he had a learning disability um, that affected his visual perception and his memory retention. And so they gave my mom some strategies to try with him. Um, And some teachers were super helpful. 
And others uh, were less than helpful. They said some really discouraging things, but my mom was a big believer in her kids. And so she advocated for him. She made sure he had a 504 and IEP and she would go to the school and she would read with him. And this was not like a pleasant, blissful experience by any means, because we also had like fights over homework and family scripture study was uh, sometimes a little bit laborious, but my mom and my brother both shed a lot of tears over this. And I remember watching my brother just seem so defeated. And my mom, I mean, she's smart, but she didn't have a training in um, reading education. I mean, she didn't really, she was kind of feeling her way through the dark in a lot of this. Eventually by the end of middle school, I think that my brother kind of started to get it. And then um, we lived in Oregon and you can't pump your own gas there. So he worked at a gas station and I think probably was like 15 or 16. And he started reading the Lord of the Rings and he loved these movies, even though they were so long. And I mean, I still haven't read those books because it's too long for me, but he loved it. And so he would take this copy of Lord of the Rings to the gas station and he covered the cover in duct tape. So nobody could see what he was reading. And he would just like pound through it in between customers. And like, once he did that, it was like, he thought he could do anything. And so school became a lot better for him. He, you know, became a part of the honor society. He ended up in college. He had a scholarship for a little bit. I mean, he earned a master's degree and for sure he still struggles sometimes, but I think he's learned strategies that have worked for him. And so watching all of this really kind of influenced my decision to become a teacher, because I wondered sometimes what happened to kids who didn't have moms who were doing what my mom was doing. And even I remember him saying when he was in the MTC, he was with some guys who had the same reading struggles he had, but they, they didn't have that support. And so, I mean, there's not a lot of things that I am good at, but I thought, well, I could help these kids. Right. And so I decided to become an English teacher, but I didn't realize until I graduated from college that they don't teach high school teachers how to become reading teachers. They just teach you how to teach literature. So then I went back to school and that's what I'm doing now. And tell me the impact that being literate has on a person's life. We have a super, a a culture that's really like literacy is a really integral part of it. Um, Like think about any little kids that you watch, right? Like I'm thinking about my nieces and nephews. Maybe it's your own children. Maybe it's the neighborhood kids, but like when they write letters to Santa or the tooth fairy, right? Because we use literacy to communicate around COVID. I had nieces putting up signs in the house that said, wash your hands or don't forget your face mask. Right. Because we use signs and reading and writing to remind people and to protect people. Little kids write books all the time, right. In school, or they'll write stories. And these are things like literacy experiences that they use to create things. Think about the last time one of them wanted to borrow your phone, not to play a game, but to get on Marco Polo or to send a text message, even if it was just full of emojis. They do this because we use literacy to build relationships. Think about all the games we play like taboo or charades, any game that involves reading, that's literacy for entertainment. And I have little nephews who love sports and like they'll create these big brackets around March Madness time. Right. And they're putting all the team's names in there and they're following what's happening. I mean, we use literacy to participate in communities that we value. And so there's all these things that we do and literacy is really integral to that. You think about your, these little people that don't read, right. They're bringing you books to, they, they don't know. They're not a part of this like reading club. And from kindergarten to third grade, we teach kids how to read, but 
after third grade, basically it's like everything you do, we say third grade is where you learn to read, but then from fourth grade on you're reading to learn. And so if you're still struggling, trying to learn how to read after fourth grade, you don't tend to get a lot of help. And then these students fall farther and farther behind. And then it's really hard for them to catch up. And then you think about what would it be like to be in a space five to seven hours a day, 180 days a year, where you are stuck doing something you don't like. Most of us would hate that, but that's how it feels for these kids who struggle with reading in school. And so um, it's more than just they struggle as readers. It, it gets into your head and it affects the way you think about yourself and the things that you do. Literacy is pretty huge, I think, pretty central. And also, I feel like as a teacher as well, that I've just seen how if kids don't like to read, it tends to bleed into almost every other aspect mm-hmm. of their academic education. Yeah. I mean, even though we're doing a lot of stuff online now, reading is central to learning. And so if you don't read, it's really hard to learn. And I, and maybe this is also part of it is your brother. I'm just going to circle back to that story that you told about him and how he put duct tape on the cover of the books. Yeah. I mean, what about like, what, how do we attach our self-concept to what we're reading? There have been studies that have been done about like middle grade girls who will carry around certain books because they want to be perceived as certain people. They may not read those books, but cool kids at their school read these books. Or, I mean, you can think about what you can tell about someone by the book they're carrying. It's their interest. It's like sometimes how thick the book is. We think you're smarter if you read thicker books. Also, I mean, you think about like the subjects that people are interested in. That's a very obvious way that like literacy is a part of our identity. But I mean, you think about any space that you're in, if you can do the thing that is valued in that space well, you tend to feel better about yourself. If you struggle with that thing, you don't feel so great. If I had to be on the basketball court every day playing against my brothers who are like six feet, six feet four, I would not feel good about myself, right? Because I would not be performing great in that space, especially compared to the other people around me. I mean, that would influence my identity. Same thing with reading. When you're in a space with a lot of other people that are reading well and you're struggling, you can't help but internalize these comparisons that you make about yourself with other people and then have that affect how you feel about yourself. And what strategies do you teach your students about increasing a student's love for reading and ultimately learning? So a lot of my students right now are people who want to become English teachers. But the horrible thing about that is they are typically people who did really well in school and they love books and they can't imagine why anyone would not want to be in school. And so It's really important for them to recognize that not every kid in school is like them. In fact, most kids are not like them. And helping them understand what it's like for a struggling reader is important. We talk a lot about identity and how our identities are internalized um, from a very young age. We talk about how hard it is to change identities. We talk about the importance of separating what people do from what their worth is, right? Because just because someone struggles as a reader doesn't mean that they're not a good person or a smart person, but it does mean they need to learn some new strategies and skills. I try to teach them to create a safe learning environment because when you don't do something well, well, learning always involves risks, but when you are struggling with something, you know, you're probably going to fail a couple or more than a couple times before you really master it. And so for that learning to take place for these kids, they have to be in a safe environment. They have to be with people that they trust. And so that is important too, building relationships of 
trust. I teach them a lot about how to help their students become fluent and what that means, different strategies that they can learn or use in their classrooms to do that. I try to get them to develop a testimony of audiobooks because sometimes we don't think audiobooks count as real books, but these can be game changers for kids who struggle as reading because they can hear the story, they can hear a good reader sharing the story, and then they also can follow along and that really helps them with understanding the book, both staying on, um, on track by staying focused. I also teach them that sometimes it's okay to watch the movie before you read the book. And that sounds like a sin to some people, but really visualizing is essential to the reading process. And if you've seen the movie, even if the plots differ, which they almost always do, you can think about those people or those actors in your head. And that helps you visualize as you're reading what's happening in the story. In fact, a lot of kids will say like, I can see the movie in my head as I read the book. And that's exactly what we want them to do. I teach them to try to shift the reader experience. Page numbers are super overwhelming. And so if kids can read on eBooks, then that can help. I mean, that changes the number of pages. It changes how often they flip or they're moving things around. So that's really helpful. And then I also try to challenge them to think differently about the types of books that they value in their classrooms. A kid may not want to read the classics, but he may be able to read a 200-page manual to put an engine together or fix the car or radio or something. And so helping them recognize the literacy strengths students do bring to the table can be important. Another really important thing is to help students learn how to engage in discussions about their identity, helping them see where they're doing well, where they're struggling and setting goals. That's a really big thing to help kids um, be able to progress. We talk a lot about motivation and different strategies to help motivate readers And because a lot of times the types of reading that students that struggle value, those are the types of texts that are absent from classrooms. Like most English teachers teach literature that they love and that they consider, you know, the classics. But a lot of kids really, I mean, a lot of kids that struggle, they struggle because they prefer reading nonfiction and that's not a part of their classroom. Or they like young adult novels better than some of the other great things that are out there. Pushing the boundaries of what, I mean, graphic novels, those are great too, right? But so pushing the boundaries of what qualifies as literature is really important. What are some of your favorite young adult fiction books or authors? Oh, yes. This could be a whole separate podcast. I'll tell you some of my favorites. There is a book called How They Croaked, The Awful Ends of the Awfully Famous. And It's written by a woman, but you would think it was a seventh grade boy speaking, but it's all about how famous people died. There are very explicit descriptions of pus and blood and boils and all of these things, Um, but it's hilarious and it's very fascinating and it's all true. So that one is a great one to hook people, especially the readers that like nonfiction. My dad loved it and he was not an adolescent when he read it. There's also a really great historical fiction author named Ruta Zepetis. And she writes about historical, I mean, she writes historical fiction, but they're all based on true things that have happened in history. So she has a book called Salt to the Sea. That's about the sinking of the Wilhelm Gustloff, which is, was like the largest wartime disaster. Like this ship sank basically with like 10,000 people on it. Only 2000 were supposed to be on there. And so she tells the stories of these four teenagers that end up coming together and end up on this ship. So that takes place during World War II. Anything she's written actually is really fantastic. There's a realistic fiction book called The Serpent King that is about uh, these three kids that grow up down in Tennessee 
but there's a lot of questions that they're asking that have to do with living in rural communities and religion and what it means to go beyond the confines of what people put you in. It's one of my favorites and teenagers love it. There's a book called Lovely War by Julie Berry, and it's another historical fiction novel, but it's, you start out and you're reading it and it's narrated by the Greek gods and goddesses. And it's basically like this challenge that is given to Aphrodite to like tell the greatest love story of all time. And so she ends up telling the story that involves war and death and all of these things. And so all the gods get involved, but the story is beautiful. My favorite science fiction book right now is called Scythe by Neil Shusterman. Basically, it takes place in this futuristic world where nobody dies a natural death. And so people are basically called to be scythes and they have to go and like figure out a way to like, they have to kill a certain number of people every year. And um, so this book tells the story of these two teenagers who are chosen to be scythes and what that involves. And it is fascinating and it sounds kind of dark, but it's like one of the best books I've read all year. And then a book that I will be giving to my nieces when they turn into teenagers is called Stepsister by Jennifer Donnelly. And it's a fairy tale, like fractured fairy tale, where you get the story of Cinderella from one of the stepsisters. But it's unlike any fractured fairy tale I have read. And it's just full of a lot of really great life advice from the perspective of the stepsister about where strength really comes from and what it means to care about people and to use your strengths to overcome your weaknesses. And it's beautiful. Oh, I'm so excited. And I, know. I also feel like the book you recommended to me a while back was Honey Baby Sweetheart. Oh, yes. That's also one of my favorites. It is such a good book. I really enjoyed that. And I like to re- I, I like to re-listen to that book. It's just such a fun one. Yeah. Deb Coletti, anything she's written is really fantastic as well. And then we're going to kind of shift here to how does literacy impact spirituality? So tell us about the article you wrote for the Enzyme on this topic or whatever you want to go on that direction. I'll also include that in the show notes. Okay. When I was in graduate school, I came across a talk by Elaine Jack, who was the, she was one of the General Relief Society presidents. And in it, she says that each soul is valuable to our father in heaven. The church has no borders, no restrictions by culture, race, or language, but illiteracy is a barrier. Members must be able to read to understand the scriptures as well as the messages of the Latter-day Prophets. And to me, that just summarizes all of it. Like there's nothing that is keeping anyone from hearing the gospel, but illiteracy is a huge barrier. And we have to, I mean, you think about Moroni 10, three through five, read and pray to know that this is true. But if you can't read, what do you do, right? Um, and the scriptures really are like peppered with all of these references to reading and writing and literacy and identity all throughout their pages. And so this is a huge part of our religion. Um, in the article that you mentioned, um, I talk about a friend of mine who I ministered to while I was in graduate school. And we, this was back in the days when we had visiting teaching and we had a message that month that talked about the value of scripture reading. So we're going through the questions and I asked her, you know, the question was like, how do you feel when you read the scriptures? And she said, well, I don't really, I've never read them on my own. I, I struggle as a reader and I feel really dumb when I have to read them. And I was researching this at the time and it really hit me hard because it's not the, not the, it's not the stuff in the scriptures that makes her feel dumb, but the act of reading. But when you think about all the things we do in our church that center around literacy, the, it's going to be really hard for some kids to separate 
reading from their testimonies, because if they feel dumb every time they try to engage in these practices or, you know, work on come follow me or read the missionary, you know, preach my gospel, they have to give a talk, right? Like all of these literacy things are a part of the, of the church. So, and also I started thinking about this even more, um, cause my parents are serving a mission in Ghana and way uh, my mom told me one time about this experience she had at church when they were talking about the importance of sharing their testimonies. And this sister raised her hand and she said, how can I share the testimony of the book of Mormon when I can't read? And I mean, she's in a rural area and I mean, Ghana has one of the highest literacy rates in Africa, but this is a huge thing. If we're really going to be a worldwide church, we have to help people know how to read because this is an important part of building their testimonies. So I'm not saying get rid of reading in the church. I'm saying we need to be sensitive about the fact that this is a challenge for some people and cognizant of the fact that we can do things to help support people that struggle as readers. And what are some of those ideas that you have for how we can support those struggling readers in a spiritual setting? So this probably seems like a ridiculous one, but not roll your eyes when it takes someone a while to read a scripture, right? Because, um, that's a thing. Like if, so your if your Sunday school teacher says, oh, we're just going to go down the row and the next five people will read the next five verses. Well, if one of those people is a struggling reader, you're totally putting them on the spot and you might not think, I mean, you might not give it a second thought to do that kind of reading, but they're like counting to see which person they're going to be. And they're trying to like frantically read that verse to make sure there's no words in there that they're going to say wrong and feel stupid about. I mean, even when we're good readers, we kind of do that. Right. But it just, it takes a bigger toll. So asking for volunteers is important. If people are consistently not volunteering, whether they're adults or little kids, you might, when you're prepping your lesson, if you do it more than an hour before church, you can think, oh, who can I call this week and ask, you know, give them a chance to like read the scripture and prepare to share, to read it and share. And just that little extra preparation time can make a huge difference. Integrating video or um, audio resources can be helpful with these conference talks, it's, we're not just given the link to the text of the talk, but we can listen to the talk we have the audio or we can watch it. And those sorts of things are fantastic supplements as well. And how has your relationship with God been, been enhanced through your profession and the decision that you've made to focus on literacy? I mean, so I look at reader identity, but I think at the heart, almost all identity issues come back to questions that we have about who we are and what our value is and what that means in the world that we live in. And as members of the church, we know that the identity that matters most is our identity as children of God. And that seems like such a basic truth. I mean, we sing it in primary, but it's an essential doctrine that knowing that can change the way we see ourselves. It can change the value that we feel that we have in the world. And it's super empowering, but it's also scary because that seems like one of the core things that Satan is really trying to like attack us on the most. And even as someone who's very aware of this, like this is where he always gets me. Right. And so I love this quote by president Iring. He said he was talking to teachers and he says, it's not really going to be so much about whether or not we master students master a particular subject or pass an exam, but what they, what will really matter the most is what they learn from us about who they really are and what they can become. And he says, my guess is they won't learn that from lectures. They will get it from feelings of who you are, who you think they are and what you think they might become. When I'm being my best self, I think about that 
because it's like, who am I saying that I am? How am I positioning my students and their value and who they are? And how are the things that I'm doing, helping them understand their potential to become all that they can become? And I think that there's just so much in our world that works against the true answers to those questions, but we have the chance to help one another work towards a knowledge of the truth and that can make all the difference. And what do you think the average literate person takes for granted on a day-to-day basis? This was one of the most interesting questions that I would ask the students that I work with that struggle as readers. And uh, think about the last time you sent a text message to someone you love or that you have a crush on. Did you have to put it into spell check on Microsoft Word to make sure you're spelling the words right? Probably not. But they do this, right? Or they use the wrong word or it autocorrects and they don't catch it. Those are those are big things that influence the lives of people who struggle as readers. Or think about the last time you played a game where you're reading the cards and you can't like guess certain words or whatever, right? Or you're playing heads up. And if you can't read those words or you get some, some words confused, these are moments where they feel like they're out as non-readers. Or you think about reading menus or reading contracts or directions. It's not like people aren't smart, but if their brain has trouble processing reading, then these are things that they really struggle with. I mean, even think about reading a book to a child. Sometimes there are adults who think, oh my gosh, this kid can read better than I am. What are, what's going to happen when they read this, right? And so there's just so much that we take for granted when we are good readers that people just don't realize can be struggles for others. So, And someone on this podcast or listening to this podcast, podcast may be trying to teach their child to read or to improve or maybe even engage them so they want to read. How would you encourage them? First, I would remind them that struggling readers, they really come from every demographic. You can be rich or poor, middle class or white or Latino or Asian or black or have a single parent family or two parent family. It doesn't matter what religion you are or if you're an atheist. Like it's not none of those things determine whether or not you're going to be a struggling reader. You can have a family where parents did everything right and still have a kid that struggles. So it's not a reflection on anything about your family. But what it is, is a chance for you to engage and to figure out some different ways to approach literacy. And just because kids struggle or they don't read as soon as some of their siblings or other people, it doesn't mean that they're not smart. In fact, I think some of the smartest people I know are these struggling readers because they come up with these like amazing strategies to trick everyone else around them into thinking that they know what's going on all of the time or that they know how to read and recognizing that kids really are smart or is is going to be important. I would also say to keep the big picture in mind because the end of third grade and your kid's still struggling, it, you know, that you think, oh my gosh, they're just not going to be okay. But a lot of really smart people just learn how to read by the end of fourth grade or fifth grade. And so don't forget that big, that big picture and celebrate those little successes they have. And really, truly, there are people in almost every field that have struggled with this. So I think sometimes having those people as role models can be really helpful to kids. I would say also, don't be afraid to like share your experiences. I mean, you don't want to put your kids stuff out there on social media per se, but don't keep this quiet because there's probably other parents around you that are having those same struggles. And when you're able to have a community of parents that can support one another, it's going to help your kids. Just don't give up on them. And how would you personally contribute to the positive culture around reading within a, in a family and in a home, what are some things that you can do to build that culture? So I would say whether you're religious, I mean, 
you can be whatever religion you want, but like family scripture study is really powerful and helping the other kids in the family realize, look, it's not about getting through 72 verses tonight. It's about everybody being able to engage in this literacy experience, whether they're going to be able to read fast or slow. And so I think that sort of thing can be helpful. I think having the support of siblings, I think in helping kids engage in other things besides reading that they're good at can also be helpful so that they're building other positive identities that you can leverage in other ways as they work through these struggles. What resources or strategies do you recommend to people who are trying to teach their kids how to read? So I would say communication with teachers is really important. Teachers are totally overwhelmed and they've got a lot going on, but if they know they have parents that are partners and advocates, I think teachers are really willing to like help parents have all the resources that they need. Um, maybe the teacher doesn't have time to pull out and work with your child one-on-one, but if you can as the parent, or there's somebody in the community that can do that, or there's volunteers that want to come to the school, they'll, they'll be able to help set that up. I think also giving kids a wide variety of books to connect with. Maybe they're your family typically, or they all like, everybody in your family likes to read certain types of books, but it may not have occurred to you that this child that's struggling isn't really into that kind of stuff. What are some other texts that you can value? Looking, I'd say reach out to your librarians because they have read just about everything and they make those sorts of resources available. Some of these are asking yourself the same questions I ask my students. Is it okay to do audiobooks? Does that count as reading? I would say yes and help your kids that are struggling as readers listen to the audio. Of course, they should follow along while they're reading, but um, that can be really helpful. Rewarding them with the chance to go see the movie and then read the book and have this shared literacy experience. And then also there's a lot of really great, I mean, if your kid is really, really struggling, there's a lot of great uh, reading clinics across the country, often associated with universities. Um, the University has a, of Utah has a fantastic one and they do one-on-one tutoring or they will do like diagnostic tests to help your kid figure it out. When I was at the University of Georgia, they had the oldest reading clinic in the country and you could have your kid participate in summer tutoring programs. And so there's just a lot of really fantastic resources out there and people know about them. So just keep asking and reach out and we can connect you. That's awesome. And I'm curious, how would you change the education curriculum to support literacy? That's like a career long question, right? What, what could we do? One thing that is something that I think we've been working towards in education for a while is this idea that it's not just the elementary school teachers who are reading teachers. It's not just the English teachers who are supposed to be teaching reading, but every teacher of content is a specialist in what it takes to be a successful reader of their content. Helping students across the content area practice the reading skills and strategies that will make the most difference um, in the types of texts that they're reading in that class is important. One of the research projects I did a few years ago involved, we we created a class called Sports English. In this class, basically you just had to like sports and maybe need some help learning how to be a stronger reader. The course content, of course, we like talked about reading strategies. We did all the same things you would do to help struggling readers, but we did it all based around content that these students were interested in, which was sports, right? And so they had a chance to practice these strategies that were unfamiliar to them with things that they loved. And so motivation and engagement was high. And eventually these kids, you know, they got some practice with these strategies. 
that didn't mean that they only ever wanted to read sports. They started reading about from other genres that they liked. A lot of them ended up being into nonfiction or historical fiction, those sorts of things. But sometimes you just need a little bit of extra support. And for them, having the chance to read content that they cared about made all the difference. If I had it my way, would have interest-based reading courses all over the place. Say that one more time, inter what? Interest-based. Interest-based, okay. Yeah, so it doesn't have to be sports, right? It could be about cooking. It can be about music. But all of us would rather read about things we actually care about, right? Some kids hate to write papers, but if you ask them to write about why their team should win the national championship this year, they would, I mean, they've already done it. It's all in their head. And that's the argument you hear every time someone brings up that one team is better than another. So they have these skills. It's just giving them a chance to practice them and then helping them transfer them to other contexts. Of course, you can't only write papers about sports unless you become a sports journalist, but learn those skills and then let's transfer them. When I read your article in the Enzyme, a couple of stories were in there about people who had successfully kind of overcome these challenges in reading and had built their confidence by being able to be successful as a reader. But do you have any specific examples or stories of people who have overcome challenges as a reader? Well, so I shared the example of my brother a little bit earlier. Um, I have a former student um, that I taught when I was at Provo High. And I mean, I loved those kids. Not all of them passed and not all of them graduated, right? And that can be really discouraging because you know that a high school diploma is pretty essential to um, a lot of things that you want to do. But, and you know, and I ended up going to grad school, I came back four years later. And one of the, that first winter I was back, one of the kids that hadn't graduated sent me a Facebook message and let me know he had, he had finished his GED. And so he was having his graduation and he was going to be the speaker. And did I want to come? And so I went and there were, you know, a couple of his other friends. And I'm sure these kids caused me all kinds of grief when I was teaching. But at the same time, like, even though they cause you grief, you, you, you still love them. And uh, as he was talking, the thing that, you know, he talked about failing out of high school and but he ended up getting married and he and his wife had a baby. And he realized if he wanted to be the father that he knew this kid needed, he needed to go back to school. Right. I thought about that. And I thought about, you know, who he was in high school and who he saw, saw himself becoming. He wasn't really motivated to make these changes in his life for himself. But for his wife and his baby, four years later, he would do that. To me, that spoke to the power of other people in our lives and also the fact that sometimes people just need a little bit more time, right? And so often, I mean, we're quick to like close the door on people who haven't achieved certain things within the time frame that we think is acceptable. I mean, we have a lot of important but arbitrary boundaries about this is how long you should take to get through high school. And this is when you should do this thing. Sometimes people just need a little bit more time. And so that to me is very hopeful. Yeah. makes me think that other people can do the same thing. And how have neighbors in your life helped you to succeed in your endeavors and the things that you've set out to do in your life? Oh gosh. Well, uh, I don't think that any of us does anything without the help of other people. I mean, I know countless people helped me make it through graduate school because I, for a long time, was not sure that that was something that someone like me could do. So I had a 
lot of people back here in Utah that I talked to every week that talked me into staying in school when I was ready to drop out. I had a lot of friends in Georgia who helped me see the world in different ways and helped me see opportunities that I hadn't maybe previously considered for myself. I mean, even in the writing process, like there's so many people that read and give you feedback or you dialogue with their ideas that nothing that any of us create is really our own. It's really the result of every other person that we're talking to, right? Or that we're engaging with and that's helping us. Yeah, I just think we all lend each other an awful lot of support. And um, yeah, so that's probably pretty integral to all of it. Family, for sure. I mean, my family's still, I'm supporting me in all the ways. And uh, yeah, the more people that join or the nieces and nephews that come into the family, like the more you realize you really do need other people. And we just learn so much from each other. So Amen. There can't be too many mentors in our lives. No, no person has uh, too many great people who love them and care about them. Like, I don't think any of us have enough of that. So yeah, that's a beautiful thought. And also, this is just something that I personally want you to have what you want you to share. But from the article about the the boy whose mother would read this ether 1227. Yeah. So that was my brother. So my mom, when she would go, yeah. So when she would go to the school, we were living in Oregon and it's not like the most religious state in the nation, but the teachers were really great. And they would let my mom take my brother out and do this reading time when they would have, you know, language arts. And she would, um, they would always start reading was ether 20 where it talks about strength and weaknesses and how our weaknesses can become strengths. And that was how they would start each one of their little reading sessions that they would have. And then no matter what happened, you know, in the midst of all of that, that was kind of where it started. And I know for my brother, that's made a huge difference. And that's a scripture that's been really important in our family because I mean, not all of us struggle with reading, but we all struggle in our own ways. And I just think that there is so much power in thinking about these things that we struggle with most being the things that can help that can ultimately become our greatest strengths, but also the power of the Lord that can be made manifest in our lives as we work with him to overcome those. Mm-hmm.